great uh, for Carol and I to be with you here again uh, this morning. It's been a long time since we have uh, been here in Banff Park Church, and um, in some ways, uh, not much has changed. Still looks the same, which is good. <laughs> the older you get, the less you like change. Someone once said, the only one, the only person who likes change is a wet baby. <laughs> well, that's not quite true. I know that some of you do like change, and... Uh, Talking with some of you this morning, I know that uh, there's been changes in your families. There's been certainly been changes for all of us in terms of COVID, and um, I see some of you wearing your mask, and that's good. I'll probably wear one afterwards, too, because um, when we meet with one another, sometimes you don't know where the person's coming from. You want to make sure you're um, okay, you're safe, and that's, um, that's okay. That's one of the wonderful things about the church. It's a safe place, meant to be a safe place, so... Uh, whatever you need to do to feel safe, that's, uh, that's okay. Uh, we want to thank you as a church family for your prayers over the past couple of years. I, as most of you know, at least some of you, I had a liver transplant in July of 2019, followed by a long recuperation, and I'm almost entirely back to uh, whatever normal is, right? <laughs> normal is a setting on your dryer, that's what someone once said. Um, I do have checkups uh, often each year, and I take meds every day. I have been hospitalized a few times in the last few months, uh, due in part to being immunocompromised. My body no longer has the capacity to fight off all the little germs that come down the pipe that you don't realize your immune system, what it's doing for you. But uh, mine's a little compromised, so I've wound up uh, in the hospital a little bit. But um, God's been good in the midst of it all. One real blessing of this pandemic for me has been learning... Uh, to live with the balance between trusting God and living with my limitations. Now, that may seem like not much, but it's um, perhaps in your own life you've learned some of that too, to live with your limitations, where you're at, who you are, what you have to do, what you can't do, and then with uh, trusting God. And every once in a while, He'll ask you to step out a little bit and uh, trust Him with something that maybe you haven't done before. So, um, so those are, that's been part of our learning journey. Um, so great to see many of you whose names I, uh, or whose faces I recognize, whose names I might not get them all, but uh, <laughs> it's great to see you all. And for those of you who haven't met, I look forward to um, doing that after the service. <clears throat> now, in his classic book, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer uh, makes this statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, while Tozer was pastoring in Chicago, an English clergyman by the name of J.B. Phillips, whose name you may recognize, wrote a book encouraging people to seriously consider the same subject. His book was called, Your God is Too Small. Often we reduce God to what we consider to be a manageable size. And he was saying, your God is too small. So Tozer's statement and the title of Philip's book reminds us that how we think about God and what we think about him affects who we are and how we live on the very deepest of levels. So this morning I want to talk to you briefly about an eternal subject, an infinite subject, if a person can talk briefly on an infinite subject. And that subject is the attributes of God 
and why it's vital for you to know God and what he is like, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. Now, an attribute of God, and, and I've <coughs> I gave, had some um, little handouts here, so you may or may not have got one. There may or may not be some extra ones at the back. I don't really know, but a little white sheet of paper. And um, on that are contained a few thoughts. And um, on the back side, the important stuff, which is God's Word. But it'll kind of help you track a little bit where I'm going, if you'd like that. So an attribute about God is something that's true about Him. So when we talk about God's attributes, we're talking about things that are true about Him, things that are demonstrably or we have have found out about Him in some way or another. Now, it's true that to fully comprehend the person of God is impossible. Your mind just ain't big enough, nor is mine. It's impossible to to truly and fully know him, but it is possible to truly know him in smaller ways. And thankfully, God reveals himself to us in many ways. And what he reveals to us in his word and in his creation that you see all around you here, of course, what he reveals to us in those things allows us to begin to wrap our minds around who God really is. So what then are God's attributes? Well, when we talk about the attributes of God, we are trying to ask questions like, who is God, or what is God, or what is God like? So that's the kind of question we're trying to answer when we talk about his attributes. And one way that we can better understand the person of God is to realize he has both communicable and incommunicable attributes. And I've given you a list of those on that little handout. I'd like to talk first with you about the communicable attributes attributes of God. So the left-hand column, these, this list is not exhaustive. You can't exhaust the person of God, but these are some of the things that people have observed that are wiser and greater than I about what God is like. So God, his communicable attributes are he's good and righteous and just and gracious and loving and holy and jealous and wise and truthful and faithful. Now, uh, one of the websites that I trust is called Got Questions. So if you ever have a question about the Bible or about something that you've read, um, just Google Got Questions and they'll often have an answer for you. But that website says this, the communicable attributes of God are those that humans can also possess, though only to a finite extent. If something is communicable, like a communicable disease, it can be passed from one person to another. And so the communicable attributes of God can be communicated to us, to those who want to be like Him. Now, we will never be fully like God, and in no sense will we ever become gods, as some people like to suggest today. God is distinct from us, and yet we are made in His image and redeemed by His Son. So, for example, the Bible says that we are called to be holy, 1 Peter chapter 1, as God is holy. Now we know that only God is completely holy and any holiness that we might have comes from Him. But He is completely holy and asks us that we would be holy as well as His people. Now our sharing in God's communicable attributes is for His glory and it's made possible by the fact that He designed us in the way that He did. And also by His enabling power. So if you're a Christian and the Spirit of God dwells within you, The power is within you to make you more and more like God all the time in his communicable attributes. So when the Bible describes the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, 
peace, patience. I remember once I was doing a wedding in a hotel in Edmonton. <clears throat> and I thought, <clears throat> this was uh, people who didn't really know the Lord. Both, either, neither of them. But I decided I would use the love chapter as a way, or, or this passage as a way of uh, talking a little bit about what we needed to be in marriage. And so when I started speaking of the bride and said that so-and-so was loving and joyful and patient, they laughed. <laughs> so I didn't know the bride very well, but obviously some people who are there today knew that she wasn't a very patient person. But love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that is the fruit the Spirit will produce in your life. If you're a believer, you're trying to follow God, you should see some of those things happening in you day by day. You should be able to sense that God is at work in you, even contrary to what your normal inclinations would be. <clears throat> so as we grow in Christ and as we're transformed by the work of the Spirit, we can share in God's communicable attributes in a very meaningful and practical way. So now let's look at the right-hand side, the right-hand column of that handout. Let's list some of God's incommunicable traits. He's unchanging. He's infinite. <clears throat> he is the creator. He's eternal. He's self-sufficient, and so on. Now, as you probably have guessed, God's incommunicable attributes are those characteristics that cannot be shared with his creation. Those are the things that make God God. And he's totally different than us in many ways, and yet we are made in his image. <clears throat> and his incommunicable attributes are things that only he can have and that make him distinct from creation. <clears throat> so, for example, God is omnipotent, meaning he has all power. He's omnipresent, meaning he can be everywhere at the same time with equal power and authority. He's omniscient, he knows everything, he's sovereign, he rules over all, he is transcendent, as well as being imminent. <clears throat> now those are theological words. Imminent means he's right here with us today. In fact, he lives in your heart if you're a Christian. Transcendent means he's far beyond what we can ever grasp and imagine. So he's both imminent and transcendent at the same time. So we can define these things, but we can't often fully comprehend them and we can never call them our own. That's what God is, and God alone. <clears throat> so, just those things to kind of give you a little bit of a window onto the vastness of who God is. Now, have you ever tried, uh, in your, on your own, to, to, to define God? To actually describe Him um, in a sentence? So here's an example, and I've given this to you on your... Um, Outline the Westminster Shorter Catechism in response to the question, what is God, answers in this way. <clears throat> God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and his truth. <clears throat> Pardon me. So you can tell there that Basically, those who wrote the Westminster Shorter Catechism took some of God's attributes and they fashioned it into a sentence to, to define what God is like. So the attributes then 
give us a, a few handles to think about what God is like. So, so God is, uh, is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Now, some people try to make a mockery of that. Like, so they say, can God make a rock that's too big for him to lift? <laughs> so that's kind of just foolishness. That's uh, not really discussing God's omnipotence in any way. But <clears throat> it's a, an understanding that uh, God is omnipotent is part of who he is. So now, we got this far in the sermon, and you may be wondering, of all the things in life that I should invest time in thinking about, why should I think about the attributes of God? Why should that be something that should take up my time and my energy? And the simple answer to that question is this. You should invest time and energy in thinking about the attributes of God so that you can know Him better and so that you can love Him more. Carol and I have been married for almost 43 years now. And I'm sure you'll realize that I know her better now than I did 43 years ago, and vice versa. It's not always easy. I mean, marriage... uh, Someone once said men and women are fundamentally incompatible, which means if you're going to live together as a couple, you've got to find a way to make adjustments, right? You have to adjust to your spouse, and that person has to adjust to you. It's just the way marriage is. But the point is that after 43 years, my life has been greatly enriched by knowing uh, Carolyn. And what I want you to do is think about if you spend your time thinking about God and understanding who He is, think how your life will be enriched and how you'll grow as a Christian. On January the 7th, 1855, the minister of New Park Street Chapel in Southwark, India, or England, opened his morning sermon as follows, and I quote, The proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy that can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in an immensity, its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. The preacher that morning was 20 years old. Imagine. And his name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And the words that he spoke that morning are just as true now as they were then. So the best subject for your thinking, for your mind, is the thoughts of God. So do you remember Hosea? You might remember his wife's name better. Her name was Gomer. Someone I heard recently pronounced it Gomer, and maybe that's more um, appropriate, I'm not sure. But Hosea was the Old Testament prophet whose wife was a prostitute. Time after time she left him for a life of immorality, and yet, just as often, with God's help, Hosea pursued her and brought her back home, even buying her once out of the slave market paying for his wife. 
Hosea's life, if you read uh, that Old Testament book, Hosea's life was a living parable because God took the prophet and his circumstances, horrendous as they were, to reason with his people Israel. Because Israel, you see, had wandered away from God again and again and again and again and again to pursue immoral ways with idols. And what does Hosea, from his heart-rending life, what does he tell us is the remedy for a wandering, sinful heart? And I've given you some verses on the back of your handout. Or if you want to turn your Bible to Hosea, uh, starting at chapter 4, verse 6. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. God speaks through the prophet Hosea and he says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And by that he meant for the lack of knowledge of God. Later in chapter 6, verse 3, Hosea cries out to Israel, Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Those of you who are old enough may have sung a song that went like that. And Hosea speaks for God in, again in chapter 6, verse 6, when he says, God speaking through Hosea, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So what Hosea, or God is saying through Hosea is this, I don't want your Sunday morning offering. I want you to know me. I don't want, you can't give me anything that will make me better. That's what God's saying to us. I want you to know me because that is what will help us. And that doesn't mean that God rejects our offerings. I'm not saying that. But we need to realize that the thing he wants most of all from us is he wants us to know him and be in a relationship with him. So Hosea cries out, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, teaching us that knowing God is what can rescue us from our sinful ways and bring us back to the Father who loves us. So that's why this morning I want to talk to you about three reasons why knowing God is so absolutely vital to you and I as Christians. First of all, because knowing God is the essence of eternal life. If you want to define eternal life, you can simply say to somebody, eternal life is knowing God, because that's what Jesus said. Uh, John chapter 17 and verse 3. So Jesus, after he had instituted the Lord's Supper, remember he, he took and changed the Passover, which is what the Jewish people celebrated, into the Lord's Supper or communion, which we now celebrate. After he had done that, and he was just about to be crucified, he went out uh, to, the, to a garden, likely the Garden of Gethsemane, and he spent time there praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you may remember that on that occasion, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. That's how passionate he was about what, was about to happen to him on the cross. And his prayer is recorded in John 17. It's called the High Priestly Prayer of Christ. And in verse 3, Jesus says to his Father now, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's why I say to you that you are perfectly safe if someone asks you what eternal life is, to say to them eternal life is to know God. So Jesus shows us here then that eternal life happens when a person comes to know God. So the Bible teaches us then, the whole Bible teaches us that knowing God is the beginning and the essence of eternal life. When you stand before God and when we're with Him forever in heaven, 
Part of it is going to be that we know Him. That'll be the essence of it. And not to know Him from afar anymore, but to know Him right up close and personal. Carolyn's dad, who, uh, Bob Cochran, who was a preacher all his working life, he had three careers. He was a bookbinder, a real estate manager, and a pastor. But during his bookbinding and real estate managing years, he would still speak many times every week because part of the Brethren, Plymouth Brethren movement, and they have lay pastors. He once said, often said actually, what is really important is life, not light. What's really important is life, not light. And I think he meant by that, what's really vital for us in our lives is not how much you know or what your intellectual horsepower is. That's not the important thing. It is important to some degree, but it's not the important thing. The important thing is whether or not you have life. So light is knowledge, something that we all can gain more and more of as we study. But light is something that's given to us. Or sorry, life is something that's given to us by God. <clears throat> so the important thing then is whether or not you have life, whether you have a personal relationship with God. So let me illustrate from Scripture, uh, Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> Mark chapter 1 is a story about Jesus going into the synagogue. If you read Scripture, you find that Jesus made it his habit to be in church every Saturday. It says it was his custom to be in the synagogue every, um, every Sabbath day. And in Mark chapter 1, verses 21-24, we read, On the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching because the rabbis used to say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, therefore this is what I think you should think. Jesus said, I tell you. He didn't say this is what the rabbi thinks. The rabbi says. He says, I tell you, because he was speaking as God. So they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue, as Jesus was teaching, a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. <clears throat> so the demon says to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So in some ways, this demon is claiming to know who Jesus is. But it's quite clear that the knowledge of God that lies at the heart of our Christian life is not the knowledge this demon has. This demon's knowledge is intellectual and fearful and nothing more. The knowledge that lies at the heart of being a Christian is intimate and close with God and full of love and joy. So for the Christian then, knowledge implies a relationship. So for example, when the Bible says that Adam knew his wife Eve, in Genesis chapter 4, it means that he had a physical union with her. And that was what uh, was a part of his knowledge of her. Spiritual relationships are also described in using this word, no. So Jesus, for example, uses the word no to refer to his saving relationship with those who follow him. He says, John, 4, John 10, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep. 
and my sheep know me. <clears throat> now you likely haven't had much to do with sheep, nor have I, but I've read enough to know that if I was to try to go and, and call to the sheep, they would turn and run the other direction. But if the shepherd goes out there and calls to the sheep, they come to him, and he'll even call them by name. Someone said, don't call anything by name that you plan eventually to eat. <laughs> we still call the cows on the farm by certain names that we uh, knew them by. But Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. They follow me. He said to his disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And in contrast to that, Jesus said to the Jews who did not believe in him, he said, you do not know my father. So if you just think about that word, to know then, to know Christ is to have faith in Him, to follow Him, to have a relationship with Him, to love Him, and to be loved by Him. It's not just, I have an intellectual grasp of who Jesus is. To know Jesus as a Christian means much, much more than that. And that knowledge is meant to be something that increases. The Bible says, 2 Peter 3, that we are to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the knowledge then that lies at the heart of the Christian life begins when we trust in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. And the fact that we know God <clears throat> starts to become visible to other people as we obey Jesus and His Word. When we begin to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him, when we begin to fashion and shape our lives guided by the Spirit to be like Jesus, then the fact that we know God starts to become visible and people start to notice it in us. So biblically then, to say that I know God means I've experienced His saving grace through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's the essence of knowing God, the essence of being a Christian. However, knowing God should go much deeper than that. That's the beginning. That's where it starts, but it should go much deeper. So the second reason then that the Bible emphasizes the importance of knowing God is that knowing God is to be the goal and the delight of our lives. Knowing God should be the, the thing that we're aiming for and it should be what delights us as, as Christians. So the Lord um, has quite a strong and timely word for us today through the mouth of his servant, the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 9, the Lord speaks and says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts Boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So of all the things that we can boast in in our human uh, condition, our existence, our lives, 
God says, don't boast in wisdom or might or riches. If you want to boast, boast in the fact that you understand me, that you know me. That's where the heart of our knowledge and of our joy should be. Now, if we're not wise as Christians, <laughs> and all of us have struggles with that, we can begin to focus too much on our education. I started my uh, master's degree in 1981. I finished it in 2001. <laughs> Took me 20 years. That's because I was just doing a little bit here, a little bit there, and uh, but God got me through it. But the point was that it could it was easy for me to focus on my education, but I had lots of other things to keep me busy being a pastor, so I didn't focus, thankfully, on that. We can focus on being in good shape. We can focus on getting a better job. We can focus on our car or our clothes or our entertainment, whatever. But when we begin to focus on those things, to make those things the heart of what we're concerned about, we put ourselves in danger of what this verse is warning us about, of boasting in our wisdom or our might or our riches. We can drift into thinking about those things and talking about them and focusing on them so that people know that so-and-so really likes this. And so those things can become, if we're not careful, what we boast about. And Jeremiah, God is using him to speak to us about avoiding those roads that lead us into sin, about boasting in other things. But rather, God says, boast in the fact you understand and you know me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. In the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So knowing God is both a positive side and a negative side. We need to know Him, and we need to know what He's like. We need to know His attributes. We need to draw closer to Him day by day. We also need to understand what's not valuable to Him, what He doesn't like, the things that put Him off, so to speak. You'd be amazed how many times, if you look up in your... In your, um, your concordance or in if you have a phone if you google it and just google abomination <laughs> in the scriptures you'll find that there's a lot of things that are an abomination to god that he does not like so let me give you a couple examples in psalm 147 verses 10 11 the writer tells us that god's delight is not in the strength of a horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. To put it into the 21st century. God doesn't care how many horses you got underneath that hood. It's not important. And He also doesn't care how many great muscles you got in your legs. It's not important. He doesn't take delight in that. Now, it's good to stay in shape. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I need to do more of that. It's one of the things that the pandemic has done has kept me away from the gym. <clears throat> but God delights not in the strength of horses or the legs of men, but He takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in Him, in His love. In Luke 16, uh, Jesus is talking to the crowds, and He's talking to them about money, about unrighteous mammon or unrighteous wealth. And I think Jesus' purpose is to be sure or to warn the crowds that they don't confuse money with real riches. 
Money is not real riches. And Luke tells us on that occasion that the Pharisees who were lovers of money, and I'm quoting from Luke 16 now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. It would be good to let that kind of a verse guide our lives, right? What is exalted among men is an abomination in the eyes of God. We'd probably make some different decisions than we do now, right? So if we know God, then we need to delight in the things that He delights in and reject the things that He rejects. Now, thankfully, we learn here in Jeremiah 9 exactly what God does delight in. He practices and delights in steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. So, friends, those are the things we need to give our lives to as well. To steadfast love for our our spouses, for our children, for our neighbors, for our friends, even for those who might be our enemies. We're to delight in justice, not social justice, although that's a small part of the picture. God's justice is, is huge compared to social justice. Someone once said, when I consider that God is just, I tremble. In other words, that person was saying, when I consider that if God was to give me what I should get, I would be getting justice and not mercy. But thankfully, God has given us mercy and not justice through Christ. So let me just give you one example about one of God's attributes that we should know about. And this is just one example. (coughs) You could take each of them and should in your own life to think about what God is like and how you need to get to know Him. But one example, one thing about God, one of His attributes we need to know about so you can live a life that is full and blessed is His love. You need to know about His love. So in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is praying for the Christians in Ephesus, and here's how he prays in verses 17 to 19. He prays that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a great way to pray for your brother or sister in Christ. And even for those who don't know him, that they might have strength to understand just how great the love of God is, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So how do we know something that surpasses knowledge? How can we understand, grasp something that goes beyond knowledge? And that's where I'll come back a little bit again to the concept of marriage. Those of you who have been married any length of time, you find that you know your husband or wife in a way that surpasses knowledge. You might find it hard to describe your spouse to another person using simply the terms that they might understand because your knowledge is much wider, 
and deeper. It's, it's, it's so much greater than that. And Paul wants these believers to be rooted in love and to understand the greatness of the love of Christ, even understand or know the love that surpasses knowledge. So what he means by that is this. He does not mean that he wants us to be able to say that I understand the love of Christ. He wants us to be able to say I've experienced the love of Christ in my life. And those of you who have experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. Often you and I deserve to be kicked into the middle of next week for something we've done. And what does God do to us? He loves us and He forgives us and He puts us right back on the path again. That's His love that surpasses knowledge. He takes us and gives us what we do not deserve. <clears throat> now, I've learned in ministry that it's often very difficult for Christians to believe that God really loves them. God loves the whole world. But it's hard sometimes for Christians to say, God loves me. We'll sing the song, and we love to sing the song, rightly so, but Philip Yancey, uh, the author, once um, received a little postcard um, from a friend. And the postcard simply said, I am the one Jesus loves. And Philip Yancey couldn't figure out, is the guy saying, na, 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 na. <laughs> I'm the one Jesus loves. Or was the guy simply saying, I finally come to the understanding that I am the one Jesus loves. He loves everybody. He loves his people especially. He loves his son in a unique way, but he loves me in a way that I can't really understand. So that's exactly the reason why you need to think about his love. To grasp the fact that he actually does love you. You with all your warts and blemishes, which I have too, all those things that you make think make you unlovable to other people. He loves you in spite of those things. He knows those things, knows them all and more that you can't even think of. And he still loves you. <coughs> Later on in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Paul urges his readers to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God as God's beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved you. So my point here is this. How can we imitate a God we don't know? We're supposed to imitate God's love toward other people, toward the people who poke fun at us, the people who give a little zings at work to us, things that hurt. We're supposed to be able to imitate God in His love and love those people. How can we possibly do that if we don't know how much God loves us, if we don't know that He is a God of love and His love overflows for you as a Christian? So thinking about God, thinking about His love and all His other attributes will help you to understand who you are as a person so that you can be the kind of person that God wants you to be, to walk in love to others and really love them as they need to be loved. Paul, uh, writing from a prison cell in Philippians chapter 3, says to the Philippian Christians, 
talks about his own experience of knowing God. He says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss except, or sorry, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he says, For Christ's sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. That's a polite word, not the word that Paul used. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And then he says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. That was Paul's goal in life, was to know Jesus. What I'm saying to you this morning, in case you missed it, should be your goal and mine as well, to know Christ, to know God, to know how much he loves us and all the other things about him. Now Paul says he counts as loss everything because of the worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. What did he lost? Well, he lost the respect of countless people, Jewish people. He lost his status as a Jew, his status as a Pharisee. He lost his freedom, his safety, his security, often his health. He was, five times, he was given the 39 lashes minus one by the Jews. So five times, Paul was beaten with a lash 39 times. Imagine if you saw Paul at the beach about to go swimming what his back would look like. He says, it's all rubbish that I may know him. It was what Paul saw as the goal and the delight of his life. William Perkins was one of the greatest of the Puritans. He lived 1558 to 1602. William Perkins once said, theology is the science of living blessedly forever. So I was listening to uh, a sermon uh, this last week, that's where I got this from, that quote. And the guy, he was a professor and a, and a pastor. <clears throat> so he says, sometimes when people ask me on the plane, what do you do for a living? I say, I teach the science of living blessedly forever. And he says, not once has someone not responded to that. It's a great line. So friends, if you want to know how to live blessedly forever, you need to think about God because that's what theology is. Now, I know some people say theology got a bad rap. Everyone thinks it's dry and dusty old doctrines. But theology is really just knowing God. Theos is the word for God. Logos is the word for God, So, for word. So therefore, theology is the words about God. And you need to know those words and understand them. Think about them so that you can live blessedly forever. Well, there's a third reason why the Bible is so emphatic about knowing God more and more. And that's because knowing God is what transforms us. In Daniel's prophecy, he speaks often at a great length about the last days. You probably know that if you've read it. And Daniel says near the end of the book, in chapter 11, verse 32, that in the chaotic final years before the return of Christ, Daniel says, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And in his classic book, uh, Knowing God, J.I. Packer comments on this verse, and I'm indebted to some of his thoughts here. So if you'll note quickly, 
Those who know God have great energy for God. Remember the stories of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They asked permission not to eat the king's meat and drink the king's wine so as not to be defiled before God. They refused to bow down before the golden statue of the king and worship an idol, even though they knew that a fiery death in the furnace awaited those who disobeyed the king. Daniel, when he's told he couldn't pray, he just went up to his room the same as usual and prayed to God. So, they have great energy for God. So where did those men find that strength to stand in a pagan culture that was opposed to him to stand for God when all was against him? They found it in their knowledge of God. Just one quote. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're about to be thrown into the furnace. They won't bow down. And they say to Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 3 of Daniel, verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. That's a person who knows their God, who says, I'm quite willing to lay my life on the line because I'm happy with what God does. If he burns me up just like that, that's fine. But at the same time, if he delivers me, he's able to do that. That's your God, my friend, here in the 21st century. Those who know God, secondly, have great thoughts about God. When you read in Daniel, you discover over and over again how much Daniel thinks about God and and how great God is and how he shows his sovereignty repeatedly in acts of judgment and mercy toward people and nations, according to his pleasure. There is perhaps no more vivid, sustained presentation of the sovereignty of God in the whole Bible than this little book of Daniel. And the lesson that God teaches to Daniel, to the heathen kings of Babylon and Medo-Persia, and to us as we go into election is this. The Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and he sets over them whoever he wants, even the lowliest of men. So our current prime minister may think he's an exalted individual. In God's sight, he's the lowliest of men. Same for the President of the United States. And I'm not downgrading those men. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is, God has a better perspective than they do on life. And so God will, uh, through the election and his will, put on uh, the, as the Prime Minister of Canada, that, no, that person whom he chooses. So Daniel records then the great thoughts that filled uh, his mind about God. So he knew his God. Thirdly, those who know God show great boldness for God. Daniel and his friends, as we've already seen, were men who stuck their necks out. <laughs> now it wasn't foolhardiness. They weren't just being foolish. They were basing what they did on the understanding of who their God was and the fact that he would keep them and watch over them. Paul says something similar in Acts chapter 20. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. So my friends, when you know who God is and what he can do, then you'll have a boldness for God uh, that these uh, men had as well. Fourthly, those who know God have great contentment in God. So they're in the midst again of a pagan world that stood in opposition to them. 
And Daniel and his friends, even in that place, were content in God. And here's where our contentment comes as Christians. Romans chapter 5. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God, peace with people, peace with one another in our relationships. And in Romans chapter 8, that peace that comes from only knowing God says, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who can separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where our contentment comes from as Christians, knowing that God will watch over us all the way through to the end. So someone once said, and I think I've quoted this out here in Banff before, but a preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. (laughs) So let me just ask you three quick questions. Having heard all of this thing that we've talked about today, do you know God? Do you have a personal relationship with, with Him through faith in His Son, Jesus? Have you asked Him to forgive your sins and to change you and to take you uh, to His heavenly home? Second question, what will I stop doing today that's holding me back from knowing God? <clears throat> I don't know what that would be for you. You probably don't. But if there's things that are holding you back from knowing God, whether it's your social media or a relationship or your computer or something else in all life, if there's something holding you back from knowing God, will you stop doing it today? And thirdly, what will I start doing today that I might know Him better? So what, as God's spoken to you in your heart today, what can you start doing now, today, that will help you to know God better? Well, as I conclude, I'd like you to think with me of just one instance of what God is doing through people in our world today who know Him and are willing to stand for Him and the gospel in a corner of the world that may surprise you. And I'm quoting now. The The Iranian Revolution of 1979, still 40 years ago, established a hardline Islamic regime And over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecutions. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles written in Persian were banned and soon became scarce. And several pastors were killed. So the church was under tremendous pressure and many people feared that it would wither away and die. Here's what happened. Since 1979... More Christian or more Iranians have become Christians than in the previous 13 centuries. Ever since Islam came to Iran. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands, some estimate more than a million. And according to the uh, research organization, Operation World, Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. 
Now, not the biggest, but the place where people are coming to Christ at a more rapid pace for their per capita than any other place in the world is Iran. Guess where the second fastest growing church is? Afghanistan. So as we think about the evil that men do and are doing today in Afghanistan, you need to realize that that doesn't stop God. In fact, a case could probably be made to some degree that it's those things that are happening that's causing the church to grow. Remember the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? So in the year um, 2021, amid coronavirus, a looming election, the humanitarian disaster of Afghanistan, and the massive increase of sin and evil in our world, what is needed in our world is transformed people. Christians who live as Jesus did, people who know their God, and so stand firm and take action for Him. And so may I call you in the words of the prophet Jeremiah to give your life and your time and your energy to knowing the God that you serve so you may be pleasing to Him and useful in His work. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Here's the last of my message. The words of a song by Frederick Faber. My God, how wonderful thou art. Thy majesty, how bright. How beautiful thy mercy seat in depths of burning light. How wonderful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be. Thine endless wisdom, boundless power, and awesome purity. Oh, how I fear thee, living God, with deepest, tenderest fears, and worship thee with trembling hope and penitential fears. Yet I may love thee too, O Lord, almighty as thou art, for thou hast stooped to ask of me the love of my poor heart. Father, how we praise you for how you've revealed us, re revealed yourself to us. In the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to show us exactly what you are like in your word that you've given to us to read, in the creation which we see all around us, you show, you show us so much of yourself. And we pray that we might dedicate ourselves anew today for the, the, the years that remain of our lives to come to know you better, to make that the desire and the passion of our hearts. And so I commend these, my brothers and sisters, to you. Ask your blessing upon us as we go from this place. In Christ's name, amen.